As you see in your bulletin, we will continue our studies this morning in the book of Genesis. And as we do so, we're going to study the life of Israel. Yes, not the nation of Israel, but the life of Israel. The man who is called Israel. But before we get to Israel as a man, we first learn about his former name, Jacob. In the same way that Abraham had a name, Abram, and then he got a name change, and Sarai had a name change to Sarah. So we'll see in this story an arc from Jacob to Israel. So really, this is the story of the founding and the start of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel through this man named Jacob who gets a name change. We're going to be covering several different chapters, as you see in your bulletin, chapters 26 through 36. You'll be, I think, encouraged to know I'm not going to read all of them, but I would encourage you to. Sometime during this previous week, I sat down, me and my wife, the kids were in bed, and uh, we just started reading the whole story of Jacob, and it was really interesting to do that together and have little conversations back and forth. And so do that with your spouse or with a friend or by yourself later today. I'm going to hopefully hit the highlights. And one of the key highlights we'll see is, in fact, the, this story arc of how Jacob becomes Israel. And so I want us to start by thinking about Jacob. This name means to grab at the heel, and it reminds us of how Jacob and Esau were fighting one another in their mother's womb as they were born. So in chapter 25, we get that story where God tells Rachel, or Rebecca that is, tells Rebecca that there are two nations in your room. So this is chapter 25, verses 23. Two nations are in your room. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and it will be the older that will serve the younger. It's twin boys, fraternal twins. They were not identical twins. As we see later in the story, Esau is a man's man. Esau is always out in the outdoors. He is a, a hunter, and he's very hairy. So he's a man's man. Jacob is loved by Rebekah, as you see in chapter 25, verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, that man of a man, hunting and making wonderful food. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And you get this idea that Jacob, it says in verse 27, was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. He was, you know, soft and gentle. So there's this extreme opposites between these two boys. And what we find out from Jacob is even from his very name, he is the grabber of the heel, and he's always trying to get at his brother's blessing. He's always trying to take away from his brother. And so that's what we see even in his very name. He's, he's grabbing at something. And more particularly, we find that he's grabbing and striving for blessing. So right from the start, before we dive into the rest of the story, I want to see how you might relate to Jacob. I want you to think before we dive into all the different parts of the story, what are you grabbing for? Is there any sense to which we're like Jacob, that we're striving for something, that there's a, a blessing that you want? Is there one in particular or are there a bunch of them? You know, is there something that you feel that if you get this, okay, now I'm complete, I'm happy. Single people often think, if I finally get a spouse and get married, ah, then I will be happy. At least that's a temptation. 
People longing for children or family might think, oh, if I could finally have children, or those with jobs that they're not happy with, if only I could get a better job with better hours, better pay, and better boss. Do you have something like that? If I only had, then I would be happy. I would be blessed. My guess is that for many of us, it's, it's deeper than that. It's not just material things. It's the longing to be loved, accepted, and affirmed. That's the thing that we're grabbing and striving for. Some of us still want our mom and dad to be proud of us and say that they love us. Some of us want a man or a woman of the opposite sex to say that they love us just for who we are. Not just that we want married, they just want to be loved in that way. Some of us are lonely, longing for friendships. Some of us want success, not just for the money, but for the respect and the prestige that it will bring to us in our name. In other words, I think it's fair, and I hope you do too, that a lot of us in this room, left all by ourselves without God's intervention, were Jacob's. We're grabbers and strivers for blessings. The world is full of a bunch of Jacob's. So as we look at this story, and as we think about that question, I want us to ask three questions about this story. Who is it that God blesses? Why does God bless them? And how? How does he bring about that blessing? Three simple questions. Who is it that God blesses? Why and how? First, let's start with who. In our Old Testament scripture reading that Carl just read for us, we saw in chapter 28, verses 10 through 17, that Jacob is blessed. But if you've been reading the story, if you're following from last week, if you weren't here and you need caught up to speed, Jacob gets this blessing through deceit, through maneuvering and conniving and lying to his dad right to his face, stealing his brother's blessing and birthright. Jacob the younger one. Now imagine you're living in ancient Near Eastern culture. The birthright, the blessing, it always comes to the firstborn. Part of this was so that the name of the family could carry on. If you disperse it amongst all the children, then that wealth gets weaker for that family. So if they put most of it all in one son, then that family's name carries on because he stays strong or at least as strong as the family could possibly be. And so the other kids just get a little bit left over, if there is any. It's the firstborn that normally gets the blessing, but here it's Jacob. And it's under very unusual circumstances. He stole it. This isn't supposed to be one of those moments where you're like, well, duh, that's exactly the way things go back then. The readers, especially the ancient Near Eastern readers, and so therefore us, if we're going to enter in their world, should be startled by this. You should be startled by the fact that in chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. So the blessed one, the promised one, is now leaving the promised land. What? Last week, didn't we see that Abraham's dying words on his deathbed to his servant is, make sure that he never leaves this land. Make sure he stays. We finally have a piece of the land. Hold on to it. Now the blessed one, the promised one, 
is in the land and he's leaving it. And as he goes out, says, as we just heard from Carl, that God gives him a vision, a vision of a ladder or a staircase from up in the earth all the way reaching up to heaven. And angels of God are ascending and descending, and then the Lord speaks in verse 13 of chapter 28, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. So here we see the promise being reaffirmed to Jacob, the deceiver, right after he's running from his brother Esau because his brother wants to kill him. How about that for drama? Jacob, why is he getting the blessing? Well, at this point in the story, he has no children to speak of. He's not even married. He has no animals. He has no income. He has no job. Jacob is leaving, and he's laying his head on a rock in the middle of a field, and God's saying, I'm bringing the blessing to you. But he leaves empty. And that's how this story and this arc of Jacob's story really gets going in terms of its tension. We've been told from the beginning of the Abraham story that there will be land and there will be children and descendants. And so now we're wondering how are either of these going to come through this swindler, deceiving, conniving man, Jacob? Well, it happens through more and more deception. In chapter 29, we hear the story of how Jacob marries Leah and Rachel when he really wanted just one of them, Rachel, that is, as we'll see later on. In chapter 30, verses 25 through 27, you see that story of the Lord blessing even Laban because of Jacob being there. So it's strange to me that here you have this man who's running away from the promised land because his brother's trying to kill him. He marries two different women. He sleeps with four different women. His family starts multiplying. The Lord is blessing this man's family. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, this is messed up stuff. What in the world's going on? You mean that the nation of Israel is started from four different women that he sleeps with, with these 12 different tribes, these 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. Really? And then on top of that, Laban's getting blessed because of Jacob. Look at chapter 30, verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, he's thinking to himself, I've got all my family and I've got my wife. Let's go back to that country. And so he says, send me away. I want to go back home. Verse 26, give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Do you see how blessed Jacob is? He's so blessed that it's overflowing and overspilling into Laban's life as well. So Laban doesn't want to let him go right away. And then they start having all these conversations about what they're going to do with the flocks and who's going to go and who's going to stay and which animals. And there's these conversations about how they're going to split them apart. And Laban's going to get all of the animals that don't have any stripes or speckles or spots because there normally weren't many of those. And so Laban thinks he's going to get a good deal. But then Jacob tries to manipulate and make it so that he gets more flocks than Laban by trying to work the breeding process. And you read all about that in chapter 30. You see Jacob's desperately grabbing for something. He's still trying to get more 
But it's not him and his attempts that are going to do it. It's God's blessing. Look at chapter 31, verses 11 through 13, and notice the way God is the one who gives him all of these flocks of animals. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, so this is chapter 31, verse 11, Jacob, and I said, here am I. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you were anointed at a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Do you see what's happening? In this whole conflict conversation with Laban about dividing up the flocks, it is the God who met him at Bethel that is blessing him with more and more and more. And Laban ends up with less. And now he then finds out in the middle of the night or day, Jacob just leaves. Doesn't even let Laban say goodbye to his daughters. Doesn't even tell him where he's going. He just gets up and leaves. And so Laban starts chasing after him. He's not very pleased with this. Chapter 31, verse 24, look what happens as Laban chases Jacob. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, God is protecting Jacob from Laban. The blessing is being multiplied again and again. Jacob leaves. Laban doesn't say goodbye. He finally catches up, and when he catches up, he just says, what in the world have you done to leave me like this? Why do I deserve this? But God protects Jacob, and then he comes all the way back to the place he started. Do you remember where we started reading? He was at Bethel, and there was this vision from God. Look at chapter 35 now. Turn over to verses 5 through 15. And notice again the blessing of God coming to Jacob in protecting him from harm and giving him children, etc. Chapter 35, verses 5 through 15. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. There's the blessing of protection to protect his family. And then in verse 6, it says, And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So now the story is connecting you back to where he had left. The promised one was in the promised land, and then he left. And right after he left, there was that scene of the angels coming and going, and God's promise to Jacob. Now we're all the way back. The reversal of that has happened. He's back at Bethel, and now look what he has. He has children. He has family. And then verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place, where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. 
the story of Jacob, if you want to summarize it real quickly, is in these series of stories, Jacob, the promised son, leaves the promised land with nothing. But because of God's promise and blessing, he returns to that very spot with 12 children, two wives, two servants, and tons and tons of wealth. Wealth being measured by his flocks and his animals. And all through this story, especially if you start reading the details, you're going to be asking the question, why? This guy is a loser. He does not deserve this. Like when you read Abraham's story, you read one chapter and it's like, wow, he obeyed the voice of the Lord. He passed the test. He was, this is a good guy. We should be like Abraham. And then you read the next chapter and it's like, okay, no, Abraham's not perfect. <laughs> but then you read the next chapter and it's like, okay, he does something good. He starts praying for other people. He seems like a good guy. Okay, then he does, okay, so he's a mixed bag. When you get to Jacob, there's no mixed bag. It's just bad. He's marrying multiple women. He's idolizing Rachel over Leah. He is obsessed over her. There's all kinds of things that you read this story and you should be thinking to yourself, why? Why is this guy getting the blessing? Are you kidding me, God? But it's not just Jacob. There's another person in this story that gets blessed. And I think it's a clue to help us get to that question when we get to it. Why? So one more person that's blessed. Turn back to chapter 29, verses 17 through 21. This is after Jacob saw the vision. He, he gets to the place where Laban is, and he's at a well, and there's some guys that are shepherds, and all of them with all their might have to try and move the stone to move the water, to get to the water for, for the herds. Jacob is apparently not that weak and has strength, and he removes the stone all by himself. When Rachel shows up and shows off his might, and then tells everybody that he is a family relative, and they all start celebrating. Wow, no way, Rebecca's alive. Wow, this is so cool. And they have this family reunion. And then pick up the story in verse 17. Leah's eyes were weak. Now, let's, 16 would be better. 16. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And that's where all the girls go, aww. But it's really not, oh, because the next verse really shows. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her so I can sleep with her, for my time is completed. This is not a normal ancient Near Eastern language story. This is, this man is driven by sexual and marital, I've got to have her. And so it's not, oh, it's, ugh, you know, like, Whoa, he is obsessed. He is grabbing for something here. And it's Rachel. Notice what the, the scriptures say about Leah. Leah's eyes were weak. Now, this is just because 
we're having a hard time figuring out how to translate this. It's, it's really not her eyes were weak, like she had bad eyesight and she needed glasses and they didn't have any. And so he didn't like her because she had bad eyes. It's probably because she had like cross-eyed, she looked funny, her eyes protruded in a weird way. Because look at the comparison. Look back at verse 17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel didn't have perfect eyesight. That's not what it says. But Rachel was beautiful in her form and her appearance. You see, the comparison here is not eyesight. It's the way they look. And if any of you are looking at these chapters and wondering, you know, these ancient stories, they're just so primitive and irrelevant. Look at these people marrying, polygamy, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we're, we're just so modern and, and so relevantly different in our day where we don't objectify women and identify them by their beauty and their whole lives can be determined for their successes and failures by how they look. Yeah, that's, that's what the modern world's like. We've so advanced, right? Of course not. Don't look down at these stories and, and act like we've somehow improved beyond them. We make these same mistakes to look at the outward appearance when God says the heart is what matters. And so has Jacob. And God knows what's going on here. Turn the page or turn your eyes over to chapter 29, verse 30. After working not just seven years for Rachel, after working 14 years for Rachel, finally, Jacob gets Rachel. And so in verse 30 of chapter 29, so Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years to pay both Leah and Rachel. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Do you see, it's not just Jacob that's being blessed and very unusually blessed. This guy's crooked. This guy's messed up. It's also Leah. Leah's the one that's going to provide him more sons, and Leah's the one that's going to provide the son. When we get to next week's story, in Genesis 49, we will find that it's Leah's son Judah that will carry on the name that will then lead to Jesus. It'll be Judah, the son of Leah, the ugly one, the unloved one, the unchosen type one. Do you see what's happening? God's choosing all the wrong people to bless. So why? That brings us to our second question. Why? Why did God choose those that we would think aren't so lovely? Well, the answer is not because they're great, not because they're so morally perfect. See, part of the problem that we have when we read the Bible is that we assume that just like many other ancient stories, that these stories are trying to give us heroes. Alistair McIntyre has written a book that says all ancient cultures, for the most part, taught virtue through myths, legends, stories, and characters. Not by little sayings or truisms, per se, but by telling you, here's somebody, be like them. And the problem we have is that when we start reading the Jacob story, we start to think that maybe that's what this old ancient literature is doing. Okay, whoa, 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 who are we supposed to be like in this story? Answer, nobody. The Bible's not like that. 
God's not trying to communicate to us that these people are people we should emulate. Don't be like Jacob. What you should be learning is that the moral of this story is that your morals are never good enough. That's the moral of the story. God blesses whom he chooses to bless, period. Not because of how good or great they are. These people are weak, messed up, hurt, broken, rejected, unloved. And so if you think that you're going to receive God's blessing because of your morals or because of your resume, you are so mistaken. Time and time again, God is choosing the younger, not the older, the less likely person. We could use so many examples throughout Scripture. Think even David himself, the chosen king of Israel, would be the little runt son when all of Israel once saw the big strong man, the one that's head over heels over everybody. No, it's the young David. Do you see how God works throughout Scripture? Jacob is not the hero of this story. God is. God blesses weak things to display the depths of his mercy and the glory of his might. Why do you think I had Sam read for us in the first Scripture reading, Romans chapter 9? Well, one reason is because it mentions this story, Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, why did God choose to bless Jacob? And the answer Paul gives in Romans 9, if you remember what Sam read to us, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God blesses because of his free, overflowing mercy. And that's the only reason we really have in Scripture. We should not be reading the Jacob story as looking at Jacob as the hero. We should be looking as God the hero, that he would bless anybody, that anybody would be deserving of the blessing. Well, no, no one is deserving of that blessing. Ultimately, the hero of this story is, in fact, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the story hero, not just of Jacob, but really the whole Bible. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, so that you know without any shadow of any doubt, Jesus sees himself as the greater Jacob. John chapter 1, at the very end of a story where Jesus is calling his first disciples. And Nathanael, in verse 48, says that Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. Verse 49, Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And look at the way Jesus answers Nathanael. In John chapter 1, this is page 887, Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So Jesus had just gone up to Nathanael. And he had said something that he should not have known, but it showed off his prophetic type power. And he's like, are you impressed just from this little sign you're seeing? Oh, you're going to see greater signs than these. And notice what he says in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's Jesus talking about? You will see greater things than just a little prophetic show. You will see the angels of heaven descending and ascending on me, the Son of Man. If you look back closely in our text in Genesis, you'll actually know that it's not just that there was a ladder coming to and fro next to Jacob. It was actually coming to and fro on Jacob. And there's much debate on scholars as to what it is, but I think Jesus makes it clear. The ladder was to come on Jacob. Jacob was to be 
the starter of Israel, and access to God would come through Israel, through faith in Jacob's God. And he would be the one that would give that blessing to the whole nations and all the world. So in John chapter 1, Jesus takes that picture and says, do you know access to God the Father, the coming and going? That only comes through me, Jesus Christ. He picks up this Jacob story and says, I am the greater Jacob. I am that ladder. I am access to God the Father. In case that point was missed, John, make sure you get it, you get it later. Turn your Bibles one page to John chapter 4. There's all kinds of stories of those early patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at wells. And so we have a story of Jesus at a well. And notice what happens when Jesus is at a well talking to a Samaritan woman. And he starts talking about water and drinking. But notice what she says. We'll pick it up in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to it, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, for me, a drink from me? A woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. Do you see the comparison that Jesus is making about himself? Who's the real hero of the Jacob story? In her mind, she's thinking, are you greater than Jacob? Yeah, I am. He gave you a well. I'm giving you an eternal well of living water. Jesus is the hero of the Jacob story. There's no reason why we should be looking to it to see that God gave mercy to Jacob because he was somehow some righteous, wonderful, deserving person. God had mercy on him because he had mercy. That's the reason why. So that you would know that through Jesus Christ, you can receive mercy only based on his grace. Not anything that you've done or could do to earn that favor from God. Remember how Jacob was all through his life a conniving, deceiving, oily, greasy dude. Jesus, in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin. No deceit was ever found on his mouth. Jesus is the one who never once, even when facing difficult suffering, he's the hero He's the one who suffered for us and took on the curse so that you and I would receive the blessing that Jacob received. If you're here today and you want to learn what it means to be a Christian, this is fundamentally the most important thing you could learn. God gives mercy on whom he has mercy. Don't think of yourself as somehow trying to earn favor from God. Don't look at other people and think, well, why do they have this? They must be blessed. No, God chooses weak things and weak people. Do you understand yourself to be a weak, sinful, broken person? Then there's a good chance God's mercy is coming on you. Maybe it's coming now as you hear this, that God is the God who chooses weak things to shame the wise and the proud, to make them foolish. So let's turn finally to our last and final question. 
how does it come? Do you want this blessing, all of us in this room? Do you want to receive the mercy and blessing of God? Well, how does it come? Let's turn back to our story in Genesis, chapter 29. I think the first thing we need to learn about this story is that God first wounds us. He wounds us. As we grab and long for a blessing, we realize that we've been looking in all the wrong places, just like Jacob. And so he takes those things and shows us the emptiness of them. The deceiver gets deceived. Chapter 29, verses 21 through 25. This is one of the most beautifully written stories, right? This is, again, the writer of Genesis. Moses is what we believe is the writer. But this story, notice how this unfolds. We already saw that Leah was the ugly one. Rachel was the beautiful one. Jacob loved her and served for seven years, and it was just like a few days to him because he could not wait to have her. Verse 22, so Laban gathered together all the people in the place, and they made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Now, this is the part of the story where a lot of people are like, wait, how in the world could that have happened? Like, he has been working every day, only thinking, it seems, about one thing. He is a single-minded man, and he says, give me this woman. And so then they have this party, and he gives her him Leah. Wouldn't he be like, no, no, that's the wrong one. She's the ugly one. So a few things you need to know. First, notice there was a feast, and it's likely that they could have gotten drunk. So if you've ever been around drunk people, you might start to fill in the rest of those details, right? Thing number two. If this is the wedding, and it's a wedding feast, and people might have been drinking too much, even if they weren't, let's just say they weren't, she would have been heavily veiled, so the ugliness could have been hidden, especially if it was over just her eyes or something with her face. And reason number three, they do not have electricity like you and I do, so it was probably dark. I don't know about you, but I find all three of those explanations quite satisfying. And so he is in some tent in a dark room, and she's heavily veiled and possibly intoxicated, and he sleeps with Leah. But notice what happens next. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And so Jacob is rather upset. What is this that you have done to me? I get this picture of this man in rage running after Laban, holding him by the throat. What have you done, right? Like, I've been waiting. You know how much he loves Rachel. And the fact that he woke up next to Leah, what a startling Morning that must have been. Talk about hangover. <laughs> what is this that you have done? Did I not serve for Rachel? Why did you give me Leah? Tim Keller in the book I gave out earlier this morning, Counterfeit Gods, I think helps us when he says, when we, like Jacob, are grasping for something in this world and we're longing and striving for whatever it is that we think will make us happy, God, in his kindness, regularly gives it to us so that when we wake up, we realize it's Leah. Every time you go to bed with a Rachel, the things of this world, you realize it doesn't satisfy and you wake up next to a Leah. I want to ask you, have you ever found that to be true in your own life? Have you ever longed for the promises of this world, that there is something that the world is saying, this will make you happy, this is the blessing that you've been wanting, you actually then get it, 
And then you realize it did not satisfy all those longings. You feel empty. You feel deceived. The deceiver gets deceived. Again, the poetic justice throughout God in his word showing He's going to give us exactly what we've been longing for, and oftentimes by giving us over to those sins, it hurts. He wounds us. He gives us the very thing that we wanted, and it hurts to realize that it did not satisfy our hearts. C.S. Lewis's very popular book, Mere Christianity, makes this point very clear on his chapter on hope. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their hearts, would know that they do want and acutely want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give some promise, but they never quite keep it. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, for example. Or some of us think about moving off to some foreign country or those first excitements which no marriage, which no travel, which no learning could ever really satisfy. And I'm not even speaking of what would ordinarily be called the unsuccessful marriages or the bad vacations or the careers that don't work out. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something that we have grasped at in that first moment of longing and it fades away into reality. I think everybody knows what I mean The wife could be a great wife, and the hotels and the scenery have been excellent, and chemistry could have been an interesting job at first, but then it's as if all of that escapes us. And then he says at the very end of the chapter, I find then that there is a desire which no experience in this world could ever satisfy, so the most probable explanation is that I must have been made for another world, something supernatural, something eternal. Did you know you were made for another world and that all those longings that you have, that you're grasping for and longing for, they were made for God. And each of those longings, as we find the emptiness in them, is going to tell us again and again, even even when they hurt, God in His grace is teaching you, you were made for something more. But it's not just a wife Jacob wants. He wants the birthright. Remember? Remember? His name means Jacob because he's the grabber of the heel, the grabber of the blessing. He wants to be the one that gets the blessing from the father. And he, he deceives his father to get it. But then he has to run from his brother so he doesn't die. And so he can keep the blessing. And really the story seems to center around this idea that when he's coming back, he has to face his brother. And he is afraid of what Esau might do to him when he comes back. So not just the wife that he certainly longed for, but he's grasping for that birthright and he's wondering, am I going to lose all of it? That's really one of the biggest turning points in this story. So let's turn to that right here in chapter 32, verses 6 and 7. Remember, he has made a deal with Laban. They have made a covenant together. And he's on his way back home to the land of promise. And in chapter 32, verses 6 and 7, notice the fear that Jacob has in seeing Esau. The messengers returned to Jacob and said, we have come and met your brother Esau. Now, pause real quick just to catch you up in the story. Right here, Jacob has a plan, but of course he does. 
he's always got plans. He's always scheming, and he has a plan. And his plan is that he will send all of his messengers, all of his servants, all of his flocks as gifts in series of about seven different ones, and that when they come to meet Esau, he'll say, hey, this is a gift from Jacob, and he's really sorry. <laughs> you know, he's trying to make amends. And then the next wave comes, and it's not Jacob. It's, again, another gift, another set of flocks. And he's supposed to say, hey, we're from Jacob, and... And so he wants to say he's sorry, he's been trying to make amends. And so these messengers report back, and so that's how Jacob's trying to make it, so he can meet Esau and hopefully smooth things over. The messengers come back, and they said, we came to meet your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. <gasps> Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Oh no, I'm done. So, he's not done scheming though. He divides the people who are with him, the flocks and the herds, the camels, into two different camps. Now, why do you think he's doing this? Well, let's try and act like I'm a little bit smaller of a people in a family, and if he kills all of us, well, then I'll have some who are left over, and he won't know about them, and then they'll just be safe. So he's still scheming, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then that camp is left and will escape. That's verse 8. Then Jacob prays. And he stays the night. And I want to drop down in the story. Pick up in verse 22. That same night he arose and he took two of his wives and two female servants and his 11 children. He crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And then Jacob was left alone. He's hoping that now he can meet Esau face to face, just him, and there's nobody else to protect him. And that hopefully when these 400 men come, it's like, look, I'm innocent. I'm sorry and that he won't kill his wives and his children. So he puts them stashed away. It's just mano y mano. So what you're expecting next is the encounter between Jacob and Esau. But that's not what you get. Verse 24. Notice that this man's not identified. If you're just reading along, you're thinking that it might even be Esau. A man started wrestling with him until the breaking of day. Now, remember, it was nighttime, so all night long, there's this wrestling match between Jacob and this unidentified man. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, and this is the literal language, he touched, didn't rip, didn't pull, with a touch of his hip, Jacob's hip was put out of joint. Have you ever dislocated a finger? It hurts just a finger. Could you imagine? I've no idea how bad this must have hurt. With a touch, dislocation of the whole hip socket, and Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with them. Verse 26, then the man said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Verse 27, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven, striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And then he walks around with a hip out of joint and a limp. How does Jacob get blessed? Well, he gets wounded first. 
just like you and I, there's often times where we need to realize that the reason this story comes in first is because you need to feel the weight of realizing that you have been wrestling not with men, not wrestling to try and strive against something. You've been wrestling with God. Don't you see how the story is really trying to tell you that point? All this time he's longing for the firstborn, the first right. He's grabbing for it. He's stealing. He's trying to get it. He leaves. He comes back at that point where you think that they're about to meet. It's God comes in and intervenes, and the narrator tells us, no, Jacob's been striving and trying to wrestle with God. He was made for something more. And in order for God to do that, he must injure him and afflict him. So realize that your trials and sufferings in this life may often be God's attempt to touch or to wake you up to the reality. He wants you to realize, no, no, you've been wrestling with God. And so he wants to help us see that we were made for more and that it's God we're fighting. Not our friends, our family, our co-workers, other nations. As Richard Sibbs eloquently put, I would much rather go limping to heaven than be healthy and run to hell. Do you realize that God often does just that? He afflicts. He brings pain and suffering and allows it into your life so that you will realize that it is God, in fact, that you need and you want and you're longing and you're striving for. Sometimes that pain is what I said earlier. The very emptiness that you feel when you realize all your hopes and longings and something on this earth come out to be nothing. Sometimes it's other pains and other sufferings. But notice that after he afflicts Jacob with this pain, he lifts his face and he sees him face to face. He blesses him and he gives him a whole new name. And this is where I think the whole story comes together. Israel means striving with God. Jacob, the grabber at everything, he's actually been grabbing and trying to fight against God's plans. And eventually, with this God encounter, he realizes he needs to be fighting for God, with God, on God's side. And so he gives him a brand new name and a new identity. And it seems from this point on, Jacob is not just a new name, he's a new man. He's not the same man that's always trying to deceive and con and work a deal. Jacob is now Israel, the founder of the 12 tribes, the one working and striving with God. I wonder for you in your life, are you fighting against God? Are you wrestling against as you try and grab for the things of this world? That's often what it'll feel like, actually fighting against God. He's calling you to a new name and a new identity. Strive with God. And that's, in fact, what the New Testament teaches. Those who are in Christ are new creations with new names, new identities. You are no longer children of wrath. You're no longer sinner. You're child, redeemed, chosen, loved, accepted. New name, new identity. Strive with God, not against Him. Let's pray together.